Uh, welcome uh, to IWP. My name is uh, Mac Owens. I'm the Dean of Academics here. Before I introduce our speaker, I have to give her a little, uh, a little commercial about IWP. For those of you who don't know anything about it, we are a independent graduate school of national security affairs, statesmanship in national security affairs. We offer three master's degrees, full master's degrees, a, uh, an executive and a professional MA, and also uh, 18 certificates. So if you know anybody who wants to come to graduate school, let us know, take an application. Now one of the really cool things about being the dean here is I get to invite my friends to come talk. And Nick is uh, one of my friends, former colleague. Well, actually, we are colleagues. I'll explain that in a minute. But uh, we taught together at the Naval War College for, uh, for, for a number of years. Um, Nick Gostev is a professor of national security affairs. He is also the holder of the Jerome uh, E. Levy Chair of Economic Geography and National Security at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. As I say, I taught there for 28 years, we overlap. But he is also a senior fellow for the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program uh, and program on national security. I'm the editor of Orbis, so I'm at FBRI, so we, we continue, to be, uh, continue to be colleagues. Uh, Nick uh, was formerly the editor of National Interest, and he a uh, senior fellow at the Nixon Center in Washington, D.C. His degree is one of those, you know, Oxford degrees. St. Anthony's College, Oxford, where he studied on a Rhodes Scholarship. He has spoken widely on Russian and Eurasian affairs. His work has appeared in Foreign Affairs, Financial Times, Los Angeles Times, and Orbis. Yes, there you go. And he's appeared uh, frequently uh, as a commentator on, on uh, numerous uh, on numerous um, television programs and so forth. He is the co-author of U.S. Foreign Policy and, and Defense Strategy, The Rise of the Incidental Superpower. Now, I'm a co-author of that too, but that's a little misleading. He and another colleague of ours wrote most of the book. I wrote two chapters, okay? But somehow they gave me co-author you know, uh, status in it. So I'll take it. But um, anyway, Nick is one of these guys who's forgotten more about Russian policy than most people will ever know. So please uh, join me in welcoming Nick Kvazdev to Foreign Policy Research Institute. Well, thank you very much for coming out this afternoon. Uh, Mac is, of course, familiar with this part of the drill, being uh, associated with the Naval War College, which is this is where I give my disclaimer to say, although. Uh, what I'm going to give you now are my personal thoughts and impressions, and uh, I'm not speaking in any official capacity for the college, the Navy, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So I was asked to talk a bit about where U.S.-Russia relations are going in the first, we're coming up on the 100th day anniversary of the new administration. Uh, Secretary of State Tillerson is in Moscow today for talks with uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov now apparently not scheduled to have a meeting with uh, President Putin, uh, to try to give a sense of where U.S.-Russia relations might be headed and, and is the Trump administration doing anything different or significant. And what's interesting is that in the first several months is that the Trump administration is following the same path that its three predecessor administrations have with regard to U.S.-Russia relations. 
Uh, we're seeing some of the same tendencies, same muscle memory uh, of U.S.-Russia relations still impacting what the new administration is doing. And what I thought I would do then is just to start with three broad overviews and set the stage and then open it up for questions and comments and start the really interesting part, which is the discussion and the back and forth. The first is, what exactly does Russia want? And for the last 20 years or so, Russia has had a relatively, or the, more specifically, the Russian political and economic establishment has had a relatively consistent view of what it wants in the world. Ever since the second term of the Yeltsin administration, carrying over into the two terms of the Putin administration, the one term of the Medvedev administration, and now the third term of, the, of Putin in, uh, in the Kremlin. And what the Kremlin wants can be summarized in these broad strokes. First is that Russia should have a free hand in how it governs itself that the choices of the Russian political and economic elite as to how Russia is to be governed, how Russian society is to be structured, uh, those are decisions for Russia alone, uh, not open to veto by any international body, not open to criticism, certainly by the United States or the European Union, uh, that Russia should run its own affairs uh, with no interference from external actors. This is sometimes summed up in the phrase sovereign democracy, which was coined by uh, Vladislav Surkov, who was one of Putin's assistants in the presidential administration. It fits into the Russian notion of a great power. A great power, by definition, is one that does not have agendas imposed on it by other powers. Uh, you are a great power if you are able to exist independently in the international order without having to accept the dictates of other powers or groups of powers. So that's the starting point, the free hand in internal affairs. The second is the idea that Russia should have a zone of privileged interests in its larger Eurasian neighborhood. Uh, that Russia should have its economic interests respected. Uh, that no country that borders Russia or controls vital lines of communication for Russia to reach the outside world should be a part of a security or political alliance which either Russia is not a member of uh, or which Russia does not have influence in. Uh, this has been a relatively consistent position, again, since the Yeltsin administration, second term, uh, after an initial period where uh, Russia in the early 90s seemed to signal it was not opposed to NATO expansion uh, into the so former Soviet bloc, and then that position hardened and has been consistent ever since. And finally, the third demand or ask that Russia has had is that Russia, as one of the world's great powers, has a seat at the table of the great powers uh, in determining what happens in world affairs. And it is not simply enough for Russia to have a voice in world affairs, but that Russia should have the ability to affect whatever final settlements there are, and that in the case of Russia having interests or having clients, that it can deliver for them. And again, this is an outgrowth of what happened during the Yugoslav Wars of succession in the 1990s, where the Russian perception was is that when, well, what's going to happen in former Yugoslavia, uh, the U.S. was willing to hear what Russia wanted and then would do whatever it wanted anyway. Uh, and the Russians took from that that what they want out of the international system is one where they can make demands on behalf of their clients, their uh, the people that they're patrons of, or they can get end states that fit what they want, and they're willing to compromise 
on that, but that they have a right to be at the table and to, and to bargain. And it's not for nothing that, particularly if you look at the curriculum of the uh, Russian foreign policy establishment, if you look at the Foreign uh, Institute at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and elsewhere, uh, the ideal period that they look to is the Congress of Vienna, the Congress system of 19th century Europe, uh, which is an international order where the great powers sit down and they bargain among themselves for the outcomes uh, that occur. Medium powers get to uh, make their asks. Small powers get to petition, but then have to live with whatever the great powers have decided. So it's not surprising that uh, Russian diplomacy of the 21st century looks to European diplomacy of the 19th century as a golden age of diplomacy and the preferred model for how the world ought to work. So when U.S. statesmen who think that it's an insult would say things like, well, Russia doesn't operate as if they're in the 21st century. They're operating as if they're in the 19th century. Russians took that as a compliment, of course. <laughs> well, great, you're, you're telling us we're operating in the period that we actually think was the most effective for for diplomacy. So this has been the basic contours of the Russian ask for the last 20 years. Now, tactically, the Russians have, adopt, have moved from strategy to strategy. So when Putin uh, first took over in 2000, uh, his initial impression was that Russia could gain most of this through a partnership with Europe, especially a partnership with Germany. So the initial Russian activity in 2000 was to reach out uh, uh, to the Germans, to the British, and others, and to argue for uh, a settlement along these lines. After 9-11, uh, the sense was is that the Russia would be a partner of the United States in the war on terror, and then the United States would uh, be more inclined to uh, grant or see things Russia's way. Uh, since then, Russia has flirted with its partnership with China, uh, seeing the BRICS, perhaps, as a model, of a partnership with Brazil and India and South Africa and other rising non-Western powers uh, as a way to offset the power uh, and influence of the United States and Europe. Uh, so tactically, they've moved from different strategies, but the overall broad strokes of the objectives have remained reasonably consistent uh, for the past 20-some years. So if this is what Russia is asking for, what should the U.S. response be? And again, there's been a relative consistency in approaches towards Russia uh, that cross party lines, that cross administrations. And I will be simplifying them a bit here for, for purposes of convenience, but we can really divide them into two broad camps, Russia engagers and Russia skeptics. So Russia engagers start from the premise that the Russian ask, sovereign democracy at home, some degree of influence in the Eurasian space, uh, of seat at the table of global affairs, that that can be a start for negotiation. Doesn't mean that the United States caves in and just gives Russia whatever it wants and simply says whatever Moscow wants, Moscow gets, but that you can start a process of negotiation from that basis. And you start a process of negotiation from that basis because you have assessed that Russia can assist or provide help in things that matter more to the United States. So the idea is that you're negotiating, you're engaging with Russia because you see that the U.S. has bigger fish to fry in the Middle East, in Asia, in dealing with uh, global problems, and you think that a Russia inside the tent can be helpful and a Russia outside the tent can be unhelpful. 
And so you engage with Russia in the hopes of finding some compromises uh, that will put Russia more in line with what the U.S. wants to see happen in the world. Russia skeptics start from the perspective that the demand that Russia has made in and of itself is inimical to American interests. That American interests are not served by acknowledging sovereign democracy at home in Russia, of giving Russia any sort of sphere of influence uh, in its what the Russians like to call their near abroad, uh, and that Russian participation in global fora often tends to be a place where Russia obstructs rather than Russia being constructive. And so the starting point for a Russia skeptic is how do you get Russia, you don't bargain with Russia on these demands that Russia has, how do you get Russia to change its demands? Either because Russia will come to a conclusion that it can't achieve them and therefore it gives up on them, or you expect that Russia cannot sustain its position in the world over the long run and therefore won't be able to maintain uh, its position. Uh, that the Russian economy, Russian demographics, uh, political tensions inside of Russia will cause Russia's ability to project power to, uh, to weaken and to atrophy. And Russia skeptics tend to be thinking that when people say, well, Russia can contribute uh, in solving North Korea, helping with Iran, uh, dealing with ISIS, to say that either the help that Russia can provide is not particularly useful to the US or the price that Russia is asking for its help is not worth it. So these are the two broad camps that we have seen in Russia policy. They existed during the Clinton administration. They were certainly present during the Bush and Obama administrations. And now we see signs of them both being present uh, in the Trump administration. Now the problem for formulating policy is not that the one of these camps is necessarily right or wrong. It depends, of course, what objectives you want, how you assess the situation. One could look and say, was Russia instrumental in getting the Iran deal? Uh, if you think the Iran deal was something good, uh, then Russia's help was invaluable, and yes, that validates the engagement perspective. If you think that the Iran deal, in the end, wasn't that beneficial to US and global security, then the fact that the Russians helped with it is not a net positive. So one can look at the same set of factors and based upon being a Russia engager or a Russia skeptic, uh, come to different conclusions. The problem when it comes to policy is it's a lot like uh, watching Roman gladiatorial games. So the Romans like to pit different types of fighters against each other in the arena. Right? So you have the Libyan, the Nubian, the Gaul, the German, uh, the Thracian, and of course they were always armed with different weapons and different defenses. So you have, you know, the man with the net and the trident against the man with the sword and the, and the half shield, and you pit them together. And Russia policy has, unfortunately, often followed the same pattern, which is that Russia engagers can make a case, and then they have two major problems that face them. The first is that Russia often does things that makes the engagers case in the halls of US government all that much more difficult. So you go ahead and you say this is why we need to work with Russia and then an opposition politician mysteriously gets shot, little green men show up somewhere, ordinance gets dropped uh, in a civil war somewhere and uh, every argument that you're making in favor of engagement now has to deal with what is perceived as Kremlin bad behavior and makes it all that much more difficult. So Russia doesn't always cooperate with 
uh, helping the case for Russia engagement by what it does. The second problem for the Russia engagers in a U.S. administration is that if you accept that there are compromises that have to be made with Russia, it invariably means the U.S. is going to have to say no to people. It's going to have to say no when someone uh, comes and says, we'd like the U.S. to do more to stand up for freedom in Russia. Uh, neighbors of Russia that say, we really want to belong to the full panoply of Euro-Atlantic institutions. Uh, you're going to have to say no, and those no's carry with it political capital, price and political capital, and often U.S. politicians don't want to pay that price. So the engagement camp runs up against that. So we saw it with uh, the initial rapprochement between uh, Presidents Putin and Bush, the initial stages of the reset between uh, Presidents uh, Obama and Medvedev. Uh, the low-hanging fruit was doable when you got to the more difficult issues, uh, reset stalled, because then you were talking about having to start saying no to competing interests, and the engagers were never able to, uh, to get over that hump. On the other hand, the Russia skeptics run into a problem in advocating for stronger policies against Russia because Russia is not the Soviet Union. Soviet Union posed an existential threat to the United States. You could say Russia still poses one in theory because of its position as a nuclear power, uh, but Russia does not pose the same threat that the Soviet Union did. Therefore, it's harder to mobilize people to accept sacrifices vis-a-vis -vis Russia to say you must now accept higher risks or higher costs because of things that Russia is doing that are a more limited nature and don't necessarily pose an immediate threat to the U.S. homeland or to the U.S. economy. So we have the first Orange Revolution in 2004, brings a pro-Western government to power in Ukraine. Members of Congress were very happy to turn out in orange ties when President uh, Yushchenko came to address a joint session of Congress. When President Yushchenko asked for things like, can we get preferential trade pre treatment so that Ukrainian steel can be sold in U.S. markets, then all of a sudden members of Congress said, but I'm wearing an orange tie. Isn't that enough to show you support? Uh, we're not going to go up against the U.S. domestic steel industry. Or when people said, well, why don't we increase the number of visas? Uh, Europe is finally doing this for Ukraine now after so many years of finally Ukraine will get visa-free travel. Uh, but for many years the Europeans resisted this as well because, well, we don't want Ukrainians to potentially migrate to Europe or to the United States. So, again, I'm wearing an orange tie. Isn't that enough to show support? Or I'm willing to give you some small amounts of aid, uh, but nothing that would be too too costly. Um, so we, we have that problem. that. You can lay out a case for why being skeptical of Russia, for Russia containment makes strategic sense, then you have to sell it politically. So if we look at, for example, the sanctions that we imposed on Russia after the annexation of, of Crimea and then after the incidents in eastern Ukraine, and you talk to people who were involved in that, and they'll tell you privately that we imposed sanctions first to send a signal, but we imposed sanctions up to the point at which they would we, we hope that they would have damage to the Russian economy, but not to the point that they would cause real damage or cost to you, the United States. So we were willing to impose sanctions on Russia, but not to really 
uh, do anything that would, would cause irreparable economic damage for American companies. We impose some things on you know, state oil companies not being able to get financing on certain degrees of technology transfer. We don't kick Russia out of the SWIFT system. Uh, we have plenty of people who said we've got to take the fight to the Russians, but you know, don't affect the ability of Russians to come buy property in New York and Florida because, particularly in South Florida, Russian money is part of the, along with some other Brazilians, Venezuelans, and others, is a big thing of why the South Florida property market is doing well. So punish the Russians, but not at the cost of really causing too much pain for the United States. And so what this means is that this tension between engagers and skeptics is you end up with Russia policies that often are unsatisfying compromises. So the skeptics can put roadblocks in favor of closer engagement. The engagers at the same time can raise doubts about whether or not things skeptics want to do will fly politically because they run the risk of raising costs, economic costs, risks of war. We certainly saw some of these themes in the 2016 campaign. The idea of, uh, particularly among some of the, uh, the groups uh, that were vocally in favor of President Trump, he's not going to get us involved in a war with Russia in a way that Hillary, uh, Secretary Clinton might. Uh, because you know America first and America first being the guiding principle of his foreign policy means we won't necessarily see every dispute between Russia and one of her neighbors as involvement for the United States. So we can see these two tendencies at work there. Given the way that uh, the Trump administration has begun to staff or in many cases not to staff the administration, uh, we don't yet have a clear sense of where the breaks will be between Russia engagers and Russia skeptics and certainly something from the Russian side uh, that has been very confusing over the last two weeks is looking at a wide panoply of statements uh, coming out of the administration and trying to figure out which of them actually reflects what the president wants. The president has actually said very little. Uh, Secretary Tillerson, UN Ambassador Haley, Secretary Mattis, uh, leaks about supposedly what General McMaster's is thinking, uh, McMaster is thinking of at the NSC, uh, all of which have a sense of everything from new sanctions being imposed on Russia to we really want a constructive relationship with Russia to, to fight terrorism and other things. And I'm sure one of the first things Secretary Tillerson is being asked in Moscow today is, all right, so which of these is, is the real position of the administration uh, and which of these should we believe and which of these are more statements for you know, domestic political consumption or uh, to placate uh, people in Congress. The final problem that we have, and the Trump administration as of yet is not seemingly going to do something different than its predecessors, is the way in which Russia policy is formulated within the government, so a structural issue. Again, in the Soviet period, the Soviet Union was the central organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy. Every uh, regional crisis in Africa, problems in Latin America, questions about oil supply, uh, everything had a Soviet prism that we would look through. How would this affect the balance with the Soviet Union? Russia, as I said, is not the Soviet Union. It's not necessarily the biggest problem that the U.S. faces in the world. It may not even be on the top five. Uh, of problems that the U.S. needs to deal with. It may not, in fact, be one of the most critical relations. China, perhaps more important, the transatlantic relationship. But what we've gone is we've gone from a system where we had an approach towards Soviet policy that took 
as its starting point the Soviet Union. And we now have a policy process that looks at a wide variety of geographic and functional issues in which Russia may play a role, but which Russia is not the important or deciding point. So you have a missile defense working group, and it works through the process, and it finally ends up with a policy on missile defense. And then at the, at the 11th hour, you say, okay, well, so now how do the Russians fit into this? Or how do they fit into NATO policy? Or how do they fit into the Middle East? Or how do they fit into energy policy? Uh, we don't have as a starting point looking at Russia as Russia and saying, how does Russia influence a variety of items on the U.S. foreign policy agenda and starting with Russia as the starting point, not with Russia as the 11th hour. I guess we have to figure out what Moscow thinks on this issue. And we've already spent so much time in the interagency process trying to wrestle this problem to the ground. We really don't want to have to go back and revisit uh, when someone comes in and says, you know what, the Russians may have a problem with this. We have a structure that kind of wants to minimize that. We've also, in the, so far in the Trump administration, the decision was made to take Russia and to put it back in the National Security Council process back with Europe, to recreate a Europe and Russia directorate. And I understand the motivation behind that. That's to try to cut down on the growth, uh, perhaps one would say uncontrolled growth, of the White House staff over the last uh, three administrations. You know, this doubling every administration, 50 NSC staff at, that uh, Bush bequeathed to Clinton, which becomes 100, that uh, Clinton beque bequeathed to Bush, which becomes 200, which uh, Bush bequeathed to Obama, and which ends up at around 400 uh, that uh, is bequeathed to President Trump. So I understand on the one hand you want to cut down on the perception of everything being micromanaged on, out of the White House. The problem is, is that Russia is not just simply a European power. And if you have put Russia back in the Russia and Europe box, then increasingly you are likely to view Russia through only a European lens. So when King Abdullah comes this past week as he did and says, you know, we really need to think about Russia as a Middle Eastern power and the balance of what are incentives to get Russia to be more constructive on Syria, uh, and then it runs up against, well, but Russia's in the Europe box and the Europe box isn't talking to the Middle East box and we don't think of Russia as a Middle Eastern power, so therefore that constrains our, our, our creative, how we can be creative. Uh, another thing that's on the horizon is Russia's also Pacific power. And it was quite telling that when Secretary Clinton talked about the pivot, you know, the United States is going to pivot to the Asia Pacific. And in that grand foreign affairs article, Russia's never mentioned. Because we think of Russia as a European power. We have drawn this box that says Russia is Europe, Europe and Russia, and therefore it doesn't exist in any other part of the world. Uh, our allies in Japan are very interested in Russia as a Pacific power. Uh, because they look at the emerging balances that are taking place in the Far East and would very much like a much a Russia that is in a that is not too dependent on China and a Russia that has more independent lines of communication, uh, particularly with Japan. Uh, and for Japan to consider playing a much greater role in developing the Russian Far East, uh, developing energy resources, developing the transport and infrastructure resources, developing, uh, making sure that Russia has a firm grip on, on those territories so that uh, Russia is not overly dependent on China and at the same time Russia can then balance China and help enhance Japan's own security. 
We have benefited from a relatively ham-handed Russian approach towards Japan uh, in that the Russians have not been uh, as creative as they could be in giving Prime Minister Abe more of the diplomatic victory he needs on the islands. And again, sometimes Russian right hand and left hand, you have a you know, Russian-Japanese meeting and then you know, Prime Minister Medvedev has to show up in the Kuriles and declare that this is Russian territory forever and we're going to be increasing our military presence, which uh, creates difficulties. But the Japanese may come to a point where they will say they joined us as a member of the G7 uh, in uh, <coughs> imposing sanctions on Russia over Ukraine. At some point, it may come that Japan will say, we understand why there needs to be pressure on Russia on Ukraine, but we now have a countervailing interest in starting to develop the Russian Far East. And we may need to bend or break those sanctions. And if we don't have a way of thinking about Russia as a Pacific power, if we're always thinking of Russia structurally in the U.S. government as simply an extension of a greater Europe, then I don't know that we'll, how we would be able to respond to that effectively. Uh, and either we may have Japan say, well, we're going to have to move ahead with ditching the G7 consensus on sanctions, assuming that there's been no meaningful progress on a settlement in Ukraine, uh, or we will ourselves need to be more creative in how we help uh, Japan with its efforts to ensure that Russia can act as a balancer in the Far East uh, to China. Uh, but again, if you have Russia in the Europe box alone, uh, you can't think creatively about Russia as a Pacific power. We're certainly, we have been behind the eight ball for the last number of years in thinking of Russia as a Middle Eastern power. Uh, Russia's relationship with Turkey, Iran, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, uh, and Egypt, and now with uh, Russia back in Libya, perhaps. Um, and so I think we need to, the Trump administration may need to revisit that and be thinking about Russia as a standalone issue and how it formulates foreign policy, because I think putting Russia back in the Europe box and then having Russia just simply be the 11th hour addition uh, to a whole host of other problems uh, is not going to serve us well. We'll know tomorrow uh, whether or not uh, Secretary Tillerson ends up with a surprise meeting with President Putin. You know, Tillerson is perhaps touring the Kremlin and just happens to run into the Russian president uh, and for them to have a chat uh, and to see whether or not um, that starts a dialogue. The Russians were interested. They wanted to know uh, they've wanted to know who is going to handle the Russia portfolio. Uh, is it going to be Secretary Tillerson? Is he, the, is he the one who will carry the messages back? Is he going to have enough time and focus? If not him, is it going to be someone else? Uh, we don't have an announced Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Russia. So there's, uh, we can either deal with uh, uh, you know, the holdovers from the Obama administration, which the President may or may not be willing to do, uh, is this going to be a priority of his national security advisor? Uh, are we going to have a dialogue? And ultimately, the president will have to decide, um, or maybe not, uh, whether or not he's going to fall more on the engager or the skeptic side of things uh, and what he wants of Russia and uh, what he expects Russia to deliver. Uh, right now, uh, those are still all very open questions. We may have a bit more clarity after tomorrow. We may not really have resolution until this, until we have the first face-to-face -face between the two presidents, either on the sidelines of the G20 or has been, has been floated maybe on the sidelines of an Arctic summit 
uh, later this summer. So we are in a bit of a holding pattern now, uh, so we'll have to see what happens. So with that, let me stop, take questions, comments. Mac, how? Questions? What's your name? Do you want to pick or should I? Uh, I will, uh, I'm sure I'll pick. All right. Sure. So you spoke about with the Russian skeptics, the limits of certain policies, um, sanctions that don't get too close to home and from a Japanese perspective and from a European perspective. If the sanctions don't actually bring about uh, talks in Ukraine, they're not really doing anything. So is there, what's the final end game? Is it, you know, sanction Russia and pressure Russia until there's a economic collapse in Russia, collapse of the Russian Federation and like another reorganization like the fall of the Soviet Union? Or is it just keep Russia, you know, swatting it on the nose but still consistently yeah. threatening the Baltics and Sweden and Finland? Yeah. No, that's a great question. A lot of it has to go with, I think, we have gotten into a pattern of where we sanction for sanctions sake. And the first question is to be, well, what do you want your sanctions to do? And if your sanctions were designed, and there's a great case to be made that the sanctions had deterrent effect. They didn't stop what had happened, but they may have prevented further action by saying, look, there are costs and consequences. So did it prevent uh, a further Russian offensive to really you know, create the corridor between Eastern Russia, the two separatist republics in Crimea, which was a concern in the end of 2015 that you were going to see this, what they called the Novorossiya project, where you're really going to try to separate southeastern Ukraine. So you could say the sanctions succeeded. If you're saying the sanctions were going to get Russia to leave Crimea, three years in, the sanctions don't appear to be doing that. They don't appear to have much prospect to be doing that. Uh, and the longer, I mean, it's a, it is a real testament to the ability of the European Union to hold these sanctions together every six months because you now have so many interests in Europe that are saying, look, we've sanctioned long enough. There's money to be made. There's energy to be gotten. Um, so, you know, the question of how long will that continue? So the question is, if sanctions are designed to prevent further action, they've succeeded. If they're going to reverse, certainly they're not going to reverse Crimea. Are they going to get the Minsk process moving forward meaningfully? I don't know. Right now it's not looking like they will and we are in a bit of a waiting game because now the Russians have had a certain degree of confidence that they can outlast sanctions. Um, they expect, for all the talk of hacking and everything else, uh, people in Moscow expected Hillary Clinton to win. So they were assuming that sanctions were going to last for a while longer. So the economic team and the advice, you know, uh, Putin brought back former fi finance minister uh, Alexei Kudrin kind of as an economics guru. They were planning for how do we last for sanctions through to 2018. So they feel that they have some, some cushion. And then once they got the deal with OPEC, uh, which has allowed oil prices to rise and to stabilize, that's also helped them uh, in the short term. So right now the sanctions are looking a little less effective. Uh, in terms of compelling Russia to, to a settlement on Ukraine. And certainly to, to get Russia out of Crimea, the sanctions that we have now, the, the gains that Russia gains geopolitically from having Crimea outweigh uh, the sanctions. Russians are also getting creative on sanctions. Um, and this is something that we also have to, to look at, is that uh, the sanctions say, so a, a Western oil company can't transfer technology to a project, offshore project in Russia. So that meant you know, Exxon had to stop nine out of the 10 projects that they were going to do in Russia. Slumberger, others had to stop. 
Doesn't say, however, that you can't work on a project with a Russian entity in a third country. So now we're starting to see, well, we can't do a project with you in Russia, but we can do one with you in Mozambique or Brazil, and maybe we can set up a joint venture that will allow you to kind of master certain techniques that then that venture could bring back to Russia at some point in the future. Uh, or the Japanese argument is that, hey, if we do something in the Kuriles, that's going to be a special zone. That's what uh, Prime Minister Abe will be going to Moscow, and what he's hoping to get is a declaration on the islands as being a special zone that is not subject solely to Russian Federation law, and therefore kind of has a more, it's not, well then, in, in Japanese eyes, will not necessarily be clear that it's Russian territory. And therefore, if it's not clearly Russian territory anymore, do the sanctions apply to it? And then can you extend that? And then talk about perhaps some of the zones in the Arctic being jointly developed between Norway and Russia. Do they become, this may or may not work. What I'm saying is that there's a certain degree of new creativity that we're seeing as to people are trying to say, okay, we've had these sanctions for several years. Now, how do, if, if they're not necessarily going away, and this is, again, where skeptics and engagers, the skeptics, I think, have enough power to keep the letter of sanctions in place, but will they have the power to increase them or to enforce them, the spirit of the sanctions? Because people are looking for ways now on both Russia and then elsewhere, how can we get around the letter of sanctions? And we may see some of these creative things. Again, if you look at the, the Russian Arctic Forum that was held, uh, I found that to be quite interesting because you're starting to see these hints about, yeah, sanctions are still here, but we can still develop these projects and keep them on schedule. Uh, my question goes to the uh, persistence of revival, 19th century geopolitical ideas among uh, Russia's the Kremlin's policy-making elite. Um, is it true that uh, Alexander Dugin's ideas have become normative? And if they have become normative, how can the engagers here in the United States get around that? Yeah, I mean, his ideas are part of the are part of the discussion, but he hasn't become the sole sole guru, shall we say, of Russian foreign policy. Uh, Russian foreign policy has its factions. Uh, there is still a, believe it or not, there is still a pro-American engagement faction in Russia that says Dugin's ideas are crazy, pie in the sky not realistic, uh, and really, you should be thinking about engagement with the United States. There were hints of this in February. There was a debate inside of Russia when, this of course when, when Michael Flynn was still National Security Advisor, because there was a thought that maybe Flynn was going to spearhead a request of Russia that maybe Russia should back away from Iran, or at least temper its relationship with Iran uh, as part of uh, you know, improving relations with Russia. And you had a debate. You had those who said, you know, we may not like Iran, we fought wars with them in the past, but they've been reliable, we can't throw them under the proverbial bus. And then you had others who said, well, look, if this gets us a new qualitative relationship with the Trump administration, we're not going to completely abandon Iran, but we don't have to be as close with them. So I think you see the same thing with, with Dugan, that his ideas are there, they're influential, he has his patrons, he has people who say this is the way forward, but there are others who say, the United States is still the biggest game in town, it's still better to have a, try to have a better relationship with Washington than to be adversarial to it. Uh, same thing with the European Union. Uh, questions about you know, the relationship with China. So there is a, there, there is, there, 
ironically, we often think of you know Russian politics, particularly in its domestic form, of not having a lot of debate in foreign policy. There is uh, still a lot of ferment about where Russia belongs, who are Russia's best allies and partners, uh, and the American engagers aren't. Uh, they've taken some blows. They took hits after the the failure of the reset. Um, they kind of reemerged, particularly after Trump's election, and they're still there. You find them, particularly in the foreign ministry, uh, some people that are saying, "Look, this is the United States is really we should we should make another effort to try to to make this work uh, with the U.S. and against Dugan's ideas." So he's a thinker, he's influential, but he's not the only faction. <coughs> Chess game is a risky end, right? Yep. And usually, usually pays off, but a lot of uh, smaller figures yep. start to respond, being sacrificed, right? And then at the end of the game, grandmasters usually they very often they agree to withdraw. But yeah. meanwhile, in the process, smaller figures get captured or killed. Yep. So, what's the risk for smaller countries, smaller figures, yep. smaller countries like Latvia and Estonia being sacrificed in this great, great grandmasters geopolitical games, also taking into consideration the 40% of Russian-speaking population in uh, Latvia and Estonia? Yeah. No. That's. That is the, that again, that goes back to the 19th century model, which was if you were a small power in Europe, the Congress system wasn't necessarily good to you. Um, you know, you might be told, hey, two-fifths of your land area is now going to be transferred to another country or an empire. So that, there's a risk there. The question here in, it will be in the U.S. is, I think that there's broad agreement, even among Russian engagers, that NATO commitments have to be upheld because you can't walk away from Article 5. Now, the debate is, do you extend Article 5 commitments further to countries that don't yet have them? That's where I think you'll see the debate, but I don't think you'll find anyone uh, within the, these two camps in U.S. policy who are going to argue that Article 5 should be withdrawn or we go back and somehow the Senate unratifies the treaties that allowed for, for Baltic expansion, uh, to NATO to expand to the Baltics, to uh, to other countries. Uh, to the extent that, and as we've seen, and I think part of the reaction in Europe and Eastern Europe has not just simply been because of the Russia threat, but also because of earlier statements of President Trump. To the extent to which allies are showing that they are, in fact, assuming burdens, that also changes the dynamic of, hey, we may be a pawn, but we're a useful, we are, we're, we're shouldering burdens and we're not, uh, we're not uh, free riding. And of course, can go back 30 years, and that's one of Trump's consistent themes. He was saying that in the 1980s. Allies are free riders on the U.S., and you know the U.S. is being drained. So the extent to which you have robust allied relationships where allies are showing that, in fact, they are uh, assuming burdens uh, and correcting that impression, uh, that will change things. In my own opinion, and, and Mac knows this because this is something we've been doing in, in, as part of FIPRI, my personal sense is I think the Russians, if the Russians were, if they saw an opportunity in the Baltic states, they would move. I think they more or less accept that the Baltic line is fixed. Where they're moving is the Black Sea Basin. That's where I think they see opportunity. They faint in the Baltic because they know that our attention is like iron fillings to a magnet. So they do something on the border of Estonia and everyone focuses on that. Meanwhile, as we've seen over the last couple of years, Suddenly, you know, the border fence with Georgia mysteriously moves. 
And you know, now it's closer to the Baku Chehan line, and, and we're like, well, we can't be bothered with that because we've got to, you know, we're fo we can only we can only focus on one thing at a time. I think that my assessment is the Russians faint to the Baltics, but for them, the real game is the Arctic and the Black Sea Basin, and that's where they're trying to really break out and change the dynamic. Um, setback for them in Bulgaria, obviously, with the recent elections not quite going, I think, the way they wanted, but obviously their relationship with Turkey. Uh, and which has not, I think, gained as much attention as you think it might, as it should. Um, they're definitely competing uh, for uh, influence in Turkey uh, to try to woo the Turks, uh, their activities in the Caucasus. Uh, so the threat is there. You have to be worried about it. I don't want to say that people in Riga and Tallinn should sleep tight because really it's going to be the Black Sea, but I do think that that's where the Russians are going to, to put more of their geopolitical effort. That's where they want to change the post-Cold War settlement even more. Because I think that, the, and again, we can debate the missile strike uh, of this past week, but it does suggest that you know, the president uh, is prepared to use force and do you really want to make an Article 5 test in, you know, I, I don't know that the Russians are, are prepared at this point to decide that they want to bluff, see if the United States will bluff on an Article 5 commitment uh, and do something in the Baltic states. But to do something with Georgia or to do something with Moldova where there's not an Article 5 guarantee and where the U.S. might be more inclined to say bridge too far, we're not going to get involved, I think we'll, we're more likely to see something there in the, in the coming years. Yes, ma'am. You said that we should do more, have more clarity tomorrow, but I'm not at all certain of that. You probably aren't either, but you have the administration which uh, uh, seemed to want to be more accommodating to Russia, but now they're uh, facing all of these uh, yeah. investigations yeah. of just how cozy they were. And if that sounds like a superficial view, I have no problem having a superficial view of this administration. No, I mean, look, domestic politics matter. Uh, when candidate Trump last year was talking about closer and get, you know, I want to seek ways to cooperate with Russia, uh, that was taken at face value. He's thinking differently. And then you started having more of these questions about, campaign staff and others? Do they have undisclosed relationships with Russian entities or things like that? And that changes, that changes the dynamic because it's one thing for you to say, I think we should have a fresh approach to Russia because President Obama ran on the same thing in 2008. We need to have a fresh approach to Russia. He didn't quite have some of the campaign baggage on it. Uh, and that gave him freedom in 2009 to pursue the reset. Uh, you can't disentangle the, the strategic and the domestic political angle from this. So that has an impact. I think the Russians have begun to appreciate that, the, that President Trump does not have the freedom of action that they maybe hoped that he might have. Also though, and I would, you know, if you haven't gone back in recent years to reread your copy of Art of the Deal, uh, Trump also is very clear that you know he he's he he tries things and if they don't work he moves on to something else. So he may have thought closer relations with Russia this looks like something useful. Now it doesn't look like it's useful. He moves on. So 
there's that aspect as well. He may have decided that Russia, being closer to Russia, is too many liabilities at this point without having the benefits he might have expected. You know, the Pentagon review, uh, when he asked, well, what would cooperation with Russia and Syria look like, didn't come back as a ringing endorsement. Um, he may have looked at that and said, I don't agree with it, or he may have looked at it and said, okay, this, this changes my thinking, so now I'm going to move on to something else. So, no, it's not superficial because it's part of the domestic political dialogue, and it means that it has an influence on policy. Secretary Tillerson, you go back to his hearings, I think has had to go out of his way to demonstrate that despite being CEO of Exxon, despite having these business relationships, that he has to show precisely that he is not uh, not uh, going to be too sympathetic to Russia or not accepting the Russian line on things that a different choice as Secretary of State, you know, if it had been Richard Haas or uh, who were some of the other people on the short list that released, they wouldn't have had the same, we had to make the same accommodations. Uh, he does because he has a background with Russia and you can't get away from that domestic angle. You know, this is the classic, right? You teach Putnam's two-level games, right, in the Institute. You know, you negotiate with someone else, but you negotiate with your own political system. And because of some of the personnel choices that uh, the president has made, he now has to take the domestic perception of his, does his team have a relationship with Russia that means they are not thinking of American national interests, but they're thinking of, you know, personal interests. And did Russia assist those personal interests? And, you know, the investigation may end up clearing and saying none, there's nothing there, but that's a reality that now impacts the U.S.-Russia relationship. Except in the back, Richard Jacobson from Norway, I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit on the Russian interest in the Arctic situation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they certainly, I think, want to make the case that Russia matters uh, as the guarantor of the Northern Sea Passage that uh, Russia, that therefore you, Europeans, Asians, all have a vested interest in a, this goes back to the earlier question about, you know, do we want Russia to collapse? Well, Russia's saying not if you want a stable Arctic. You might want Russia to keep the northern sea routes open and, you know, have a network of stations there. Uh, they definitely, I think, see not in the short term, because they now say oil prices have to go up, uh, but that's the long-term energy future of Russia. That's where Russia's future energy endowment lies. Uh, to the extent that uh, there are changes in climate and more of northern Russia becomes ice-free, uh, if you may have a population shift, more resources become accessible. Uh, and again, moving away from areas right now which Russia may feel, particularly on its western border, uh, are exposed. Uh, if you kind of withdraw to the Siberian north, if it's more accessible, you put more things there. Uh, they definitely would like to keep NATO out of the Arctic. Uh, it's been part of their strategy to try to divide the different Arctic countries. So certainly the Rosneft-Statoil relationship, hey, we can both make money together and let's keep it within us, <laughs> right? We don't need outsiders to, to really mess up a profitable relationship. Uh, you know, the outreach to the Canadians of your view on Arctic sovereignty and ours are similar, so why don't we uh, share things together and kind of, what they don't want in the Arctic Council is it to be like it is sometimes for them on the UN Security Council where they're the lone, everyone is ranged against them and they're, it's always, 
the other members of the Arctic Council, and then Russia. They would, I think, like to have Norway sometimes be with them, Canada sometimes be with them, uh, and then to minimize the U.S. role, uh, certainly. They would, uh, definitely as part of their strategies, they don't want the United States to be as active in the Arctic. Uh, and if we get distracted again in the Middle East, you know, that's great because the more we do there means the less we do do up there. So. Jonathan Gray, a student studying Russian. I'm interested in your view on sustainability of Russian foreign policy. We're talking about them doing things in the Arctic. They have to match uh, things going on in the Baltic. They're involved in the Ukraine. You're talking about them being a Middle Eastern power, having actions in the Pacific, even maybe in Libya. Do you find that sustainable? And do you think they can continue that long term? You know, especially considering the economy and the limited amount of people that have to draw yeah. forces. A couple things on that. And again, this, this speaks to a creativity that the Russians may or may not show moving forward. They've shown signs of it already. The first is they can continue to do all these as long as these things remain limited. All right? You can't have major blow-ups. Uh, you have a contract increasingly a contract professional military that is being re-equipped that can handle the current tempo. Uh, it assumes one of several things. One is that there's no major succession blow up in Central Asia. They dodged a bullet in Uzbekistan. Karimov died. You didn't have the country fall apart. You've had uh, succession that has taken place that's been relatively stable, didn't require them to get involved. Uh, if that had happened, then, yeah, then then you start choosing. Well, maybe Ukraine isn't as important, or you tell Assad, sorry, we're going to be pulling people out. So you need to make sure that there are no major blow-ups. Ukraine is manageable under current circumstances. Um, five years from now, I mean, we saw that this pattern occur in the former Yugoslavia uh, with Croatia. You know, if five to ten years from now, you complete the reorganization and retraining of a Ukrainian military, uh, does that change? Does that therefore mean the Russians can't sustain kind of their quiet support for separatist movements uh, and the like? Uh, so, but that depends a lot on Ukraine. Does Ukraine continue with reforms? Can it sustain itself? Is there a third Maidan in Ukraine where people get tired of promises not being fulfilled, and then you, if you have continued political turmoil in Ukraine over the next five years, then Russia can sustain in Ukraine. Population is interesting because, of course, Russia increased its population since 2014 with two million new Crimeans uh, in the Russian Federation, plus another million Ukrainian migrants coming into Russia from, uh, and most of those migrants aren't going to go back to Donbass or uh, they're going to stay in Russia. So you now have three million people have been added effectively to the population of Russia. Uh, the Russians are experimenting more with, you know, we look at, again, this is a problem of comparison. We look at Russia and we say, well, you know, it's trillion dollar GDP, it's 10% the size of the American economy, you know, against the European and U.S. economies, it's very small, but compared to its neighborhood, Russia is, is a very good economy. Uh, and it's doing much better than everyone else. So it continues, it's the third largest recipient of migrants in the world after the United States and Europe. Uh, Russia is pulling people from other parts of the Soviet Union uh, and then from, some of, from other parts of the world uh, as well, but particularly from the former Soviet Union. 
Uh, it's one reason why Ukraine has gone from 54 million people in 1989 to 44 million people today. Um, Russia is a magnet pulling people in, it's pulling in people from Uzbekistan, Central Asia. What they're doing with the military is interesting is of course that's a path to citizenship. Uh, and there's a report I think that just came out about uh, Russian recruitment of non-Russian citizens into Russian military formations for use in Ukraine and elsewhere. So that if you are you know, in Uzbekistan and you don't maybe don't want to go and be a construction laborer in Moscow, uh, but you look at your life in Uzbekistan and say, I don't really see a lot of opportunity here, and someone comes and says, hey, join, become, you know, like foreign legion, you know, sign up with the Russian military. Uh, what they did with the Abkhaz, what they did with South Ossetia, uh, what they've done with Armenians. You know, hey, come join and be part of the Russian military. There's a way for them to get around the population issue um, that you don't. And also, of course, Russian military strategy is changing because they're no longer relying on the large mass conscript formations of the Cold War. They are belatedly following the Abrams path that was blazed here with the volunteer force of a smaller but professional force. They still have conscription, so it's not completely gone, but they are moving to mobile brigades as opposed to conscript divisions as the way that they're going to project power, which means you don't need as large of a military establishment, which is why they're letting more Russians that are shirking draft duty, it's become, you know, you're not seeing what you saw particularly in the late Soviet period where you're trying to press gang people into the military. You know, there's lots of Russians now, young Russian men that aren't showing up for military service, that aren't sitting worried about the knock at the door on their university dorm saying, you know, you haven't reported for basic training yet. So to that extent, if, you know, no blow up in Central Asia, no major change in the Ukrainian military balance, continued interventions elsewhere where the bulk of what Russia does is provide advanced capability. So again, with Syria, you know, the bulk of the force in Syria are, is, the, is the Quds force in Hezbollah, uh, is not Russians uh, backing the Syrian army. Uh, so if, you know, as long as Iran is willing to provide large numbers of ground forces, then, you know, you can have a smaller Russian air contingent that, you know, has great effect. You keep all that, then they can sustain this, certainly through 2024 or 2030. Um, you know, we think 2050, we can maybe project out, um, but, you know, for policymakers, you've got to deal with the Russia you expect of the next eight years, not the, not the Russia you might hope might emerge by 2050. So, yeah, I think it's sustainable. And the economy is recovering. 2% growth projected for this year. Russian state bonds, Moody's says, you know, thumbs up, positive, go ahead and buy. You talk to our hedge fund friends in New York, you know, they're eager to get back into a Russian stock market that outperformed the U.S. one last year. So the economy's not doing great, but it's doing all right, and they can, they can, they can muddle through, I think, for the near future. So last question. Yeah. There are still a lot of people in this town who think there's a scenario by which Crimea would be returned to Ukraine, which I view as a tremendous delusion, uh, because it would mean a century of roadside bombs and GRU-assisted terrorism. So I'm intrigued with the prospect of trading away something you've already lost. That is to say, okay, you've won, congratulations, you can declare victory in Crimea, but you're gonna have to get your boys out of Ukraine and Transnistria. Um, if you do that, we'll, we'll undo the 1954 gift uh, to the Ukraine, and you acknowledge your victory, and everybody wins, 
and we're all happy. Is there any prospect of that kind of deal? Interesting, because you had you know people talking about that. I mean, I think the first reaction in Moscow is, we already have what we want. What are you offering us? Um, what are you going to give us beyond? So you're going to you're going to rhetorically accept? Because look, the Russians have taken as their model North Cyprus, right? Turks have been in North Cyprus since you know I was yay tall and had hair. Um, and what, what price, you know, so if we turned around and said, well, you know, after, since 1970, we're going to recognize North Cyprus now if you do something else for us. Turks are going to say, well, why? We already have what we want. I think there's some thinking of that right now in the, in the Russian mindset, that we already have it. But the Russians are now de beginning to deal with the prospect that these sanctions may last or that if they, the, the big Russian suspicion is that if they, they, so if they comply with a list, their thing is that suddenly we're going to come up with another 10 items for reasons why sanctions have to stay. Because they've already gone through this rodeo with Jackson Vanek. That once they allowed for immigration, then it was, well, you're not allowing chicken imports from Delaware. Or, you know, uh, missionaries from the United States were arrested in Omsk. And so we're going to keep sanctions on you until the next 10 items on the list are revealed. So they're going to say, really, you're going lift, to lift the sanctions first and then we'll, maybe we'll do this, and which we're not going to do. So we kind of have that standoff. Unless the Russian economy, goes back to the earlier question, unless the Russian economy really begins to tank in such a way that the Russians might then be more willing to accept the deal. The wild card in this ultimately is also, where does Ukraine fit in this? Because on the one hand, Ukraine has its territorial integrity violated. On the other hand, it has an escape notice that Eliminating two million pro-Russian voters in Crimea has been very beneficial to Ukrainian politics because it has ended the continual shift back and forth for the last 20 years of Ukrainian politics. You now have a pro, solid pro-Western majority in Ukrainian politics. That having Crimea meant you also had to accept two million plus voters who would cast a vote for whoever the most pro-Kremlin candidate was. Donbass the same way. So you've had people saying, well, maybe there's a deal where Ukraine sells Crimea. Maybe that's not feasible right now. That could happen down the road. Perhaps that might be something. Or shared sovereignty, uh, Allen Island solution, you know, where you know, the titular sovereignty of the state is recognized, but in fact it's understood that another state actually administers it. Why the Curile some of the mechanisms for resolving the Kuril Islands disputes are interesting because could that then provide a method for, hey, you don't have, no one has to give up any claims, but you find a way to get around the sovereignty issue. Problem is I don't think you have governments either in Moscow or in Kiev that are, are prepared to move in those directions. Um, but certainly on that, you know, the idea of, well, we'll recognize Crimea. My read of the Russians right now is they're not interested in our recognition of Crimea for what, they, what we would ask of them in return. So they say, well, why would we want to do that? And give up Transnistria, give up what the position we have in other parts of the Black Sea, because ultimately when you look at what, you look at the map of the Black Sea and you look at the changes over the last eight years, Abkhazia, Crimea, Donbass, Transnistria, what used to look like a very small Russian corner, northeastern corner of the Black Sea is now starting to look a lot like, you know, Mare Nostrum for, for the Russians. And with their new relationship with the Turks, it starts to look even better. So 
theoretically possible, I don't see that the political stars are aligning uh, at this point. But that's just that's just my opinion. So. Yeah, I forgot to mention that I really do like your hairstyles. <laughs> Can you join me in thanking Nick? Thank you, Mark.